Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Strength and Speed owner and Conquer the Gauntlet Pro, Evan Preparis. We have another Q&A episode ready for you. Before we get to that, though, a quick word from this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Climbing Holds. Atomic Climbing Holds make ninja grips and OCR training tools to help you perform at your best. If you've seen pictures on the inside of my garage or the Atomic Ninja Board, which I have an article on on Muttering Guide, or if you go to the Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team website, you'll see pictures and links to that there also. But they make training tools you can hang in your home or some races like Conquer the Gauntlet actually uses those holds on the rig. So they're great for training because it's the same holds you'll actually experience in the race. And they have a ton of different colors. Like the color choice is almost overwhelming. A ton of different products from balance to pegboard to just rig grips to more generic climbing holds you can use to build your own wall. So check them out. It's www.atomicclimbingholds.com. And Atomic ends with a K. So A-T-O-M-I-K. All right, let's jump into the questions. So we're going to start off with your must-read book on training, any aspect, doesn't have to be an OCR-specific, that you didn't write yourself. Well, since Will was kind enough to exclude my own books, I'm going to recommend a book I've recommended on the podcast several times before. It's by Matt Fitzgerald. It's called How Bad Do You Want It? It's a great book on the mental aspects of training. And Matt really uses some really good examples. He basically takes high-profile athletes, you know, and everyone in the book he, ma- he mentions, I've at least heard of them, if not knowing the actual story that he talks about ahead of time. But he kind of goes through and explains why they're successful and what mental training tools we can use from their world and apply to our own sport or our own sporting career. So a really good, really good mental book there. Uh, but since I've mentioned that on the podcast numerous times, I'm also going to throw out David Epstein's The Sports Gene. And I, the first time I listened to it, I think I listened to it two or three times over the course of uh, two years. I haven't listened to it in a while, so maybe time to revisit it again. You know, but he also talks about why athletes are successful and some of those traits that are common across multiple sports. I think that was the first book that I heard the 10,000-hour rule in, and he kind of dives into that. And you know, it's just a really good book, really interesting, and it talks about some of the future of sport in general that I think um, we've yet to see play out. So highly recommend The Sports Gene by David Epstein. I know you didn't ask directly, but you know I mostly listen to nonfiction. But if you're looking for a good fiction book, I highly recommend Ready Player One. That's the book that was turned into a movie, and they're actually supposed to be coming out with Ready Player Two uh, sometime soon. But the book is way better, has a lot more references to like 80s pop culture, and overall it's just really good. It was one of those books where I'd be on a long run, and I would actually do another mile or two because I wanted to hear more of the story instead of going back to my house. So another question he asked was, excluding money, what's your favorite coolest thing you've won at an OCR? And I'll answer this, but I'm also going to kind of tie it back into the listeners and how you can use some of these aspects in your own training. So I've won a lot of cool things. I've got you know two Thor's hammer that are fairly heavy from the hammer race, winning as a team and in, as an individual. I've got a Two tridents from Battlefrog, BFX, a paddle from BFX, got some really cool stuff from Dirt Runner series of events, so a sword from the 24-hour Midwest Mayhem, two spears from Warrior Rush, like a golden dragon skull, a two other golden skulls, a kettlebell from World's Toughest Mudder. You know, but I have three things which are stand head, head and shoulders above the other things I've won. 
The first is the 2018 North American OCR Championships silver medal. So my team, CTG Prime with Amy Padgett and Matt Willis, came in second place in the pro co-ed division at 2018's race. You know, and for that one, I didn't think I would ever have a medal on a like a pro medal at a uh, short course, you know, regional championship level event. So that one's one of my favorites because my expectations were greatly exceeded by our actual performance. You know, and I think it's good to set big goals, but I think it's also good to be realistic because otherwise you're always going to fail. You're always going to come up short of your goal. But at the same time, you know, you need to push hard and you need, if the if opportunity arises, you know, you seize it and you try your best. You know, for that particular race, we were in fourth uh, for the first half of the race and it was a rainy day, so the obstacles were wet. And our team was better at wet obstacles than the teams who were physically running faster than us, you know. So we, we seized the day. And the bottom line is if you don't, if you don't show up, you can't win, right? So if we, if we weren't, you know, if, if we didn't think, if, if we didn't try to win, there, there's obviously no way we could have won if we, didn't, if we didn't show up there. A second item I'll say that's one of my favorites is the gauntlet. So the metal glove from Conquer the Gauntlet. And that one has to do with persistence, right? So I had been on the podium of regular CTGs at seven times in second and third place before I won my first gauntlet, you know, and I was chasing after that picture of standing on top in the first place with the metal glove in the air for so long that, you know, when I finally won it, it was, it was just such a, a big deal for me, you know, and the lesson there obviously is persistence, right? You got to keep trying. You know, you're going to fail more times than you can count. And you just keep showing up, keep trying, keep working on your weaknesses. And eventually, hopefully, you'll get there. You know, back in the end of 2015, 2016, uh, David Manprice, one of the CTG owners, and I were talking. We're talking about setting up a Conquer the Gauntlet Pro team. So he's asking me who I think should be on the team. You know, and at that time, I had never won a Conquer the Gauntlet, and I and I wanted, I wanted to. That was like one of my big goals. So when I'm helping him pick people or suggest people for the team, I'm get, picking guys that who are better than me, right? So I'm, I'm inviting more people, more competition into a race that I'm trying to win, which doesn't seem like the best idea if you're if you're trying to win. You know, but I'm gonna use an analogy here, right? Like if if you want to be the tallest plant. Uh, you know, there's two ways you can do that. One, you can cut all the other plants around you, so you're the tallest plant. Or you can create an environment with good soil and water and sun that makes everyone grow and, you know, makes everyone better. And I think with the team, that's what we did, right, where I'm, I surround myself with other good athletes uh, that give me something to shoot for, whether it be obstacle proficiency or speed. And... You know, for every athlete on our team, I, I look up to them for a different reason and strive to be, you know, better than them, you know, in a friendly and competitive nature, which ultimately results in me being better, right? So, you know, we kind of all get better and it makes it makes everyone better. And I'd say my my other favorite one is World's Toughest Mudder Leader Bib from 2018 uh, when we won uh, as Team Atomic. Again, World's Toughest Mudder is my A race every year, so winning that was, was just a dream come true for me. You know, and that one's about not only persistence, right, because it took us, it took, or it took, that was my, 
fifth or fifth fifth appearance at the event um, before we actually won. But also kind of realizing my strengths and leaning into them. Right, I'm better at ultra endurance than I am at short course stuff. So that's what I leaned into, and that's what I leaned into in my career, my racing career, which we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more later. About kind of leaning into your strengths while also improving on your weaknesses. And finally, I'm going to throw a fourth one in there, my OCR America 2 when hell freezes over belt buckle, just because I just have a lot of good, really good memories from that trip earlier this year. So the kind of common theme among all those is intrinsic value, right? The, the object itself sometimes is super cool, like the gauntlet from Conquer the Gauntlet, but sometimes it's not, right? So it's like the cloth bib from World's Toughest Mudder, right? Like that doesn't mean anything to anyone, right? It's just, it's just a, it's a piece of cloth, but... You know, if I had to throw everything away, those would be the last four things I threw away from my OCR stuff. So next question. As someone who's married to a non-active participant of OCR, so my wife just takes pictures and takes care of the kids, doesn't actually race, how do you manage OCR in a way that keeps everyone happy and the relationship healthy? OCR is an expensive and time-consuming sport. What advice would you give to someone where OCR is a major part of their life but not their partners? So I'll start off with the first half keeps everyone happy and the relationship healthy. Now, I, I feel like I may not be the best person to answer this question, but I'll, I'll try my best. You know, my wife is really easygoing. She is pretty introverted, very introverted, and she just kind of goes to the flow of things. You know, so early in our relationship, you know, I used to ask her opinion on a lot of stuff, you know, well, where do you want to go on vacation here? Where do you want to go there? And, you know, a lot of times she's just like, you know, pick something good and I'll let you know if I don't like it. So a little bit of pressure there, but I guess I managed to pick some pretty good stuff. Also, with my racing, especially for the bigger races, right? Like if we go to an international race, I try to combine it with a trip. So, you know, it's a, it's a race on the front end, and then it's a vacation on the back end. And even for this little stuff, like going around the United States where we go to these races, we typically do some sort of touristy activity, usually after the race, whether that be Saturday afternoon or Saturday night, or a lot of times Sunday also. So it's more like a mini family trip, a little mini family vacation, than it is just a complete race weekend where all we're doing is driving, racing, and driving. You know, so I think my wife does not enjoy standing out in the sun waiting for a continuum to finish, uh, but she does enjoy, you know, going out to dinner to eat afterwards, or, you know, going to see some touristy stuff, going to museums or whatever. Uh, the rest of the weekend and having like a nice family getaway vacation. You know, I'd say that with the other part, I train a lot, right? So I'm not home because I'm I'm training. That is, um, yeah, I think it has to do with expectations. Uh, my wife knows that training is part of my life. Like that, that that's just who I am. So that's kind of coupled to me. So you, you can't really get one aspect of me without getting getting everything. So honestly, I think uh, I think it's all about picking the uh, spouse who aligns with the way you behave and your kind of goals for the future. You know, early in my wife's and I relationship, I was deployed a lot, so she got used to going, you know, weeks and months without seeing me sometimes. So comparatively, you know, me going away for the weekend, let's say I want to go to a race with uh, my strength and speed teammate Jacob Stone, and my wife wants to stay home. It's, it's not a big deal if I leave for, you know, 24 or 48 hours. You know, in the next part of the question, OCR is an expensive and time-consuming sport. What advice would you give to someone where OCR is a major part of their life, but not their partners? So I'd say the hard part is here is if you're already dating or married to someone, and then you find OCR, and then you're trying to 
add it into your relationship. Uh, you know, with me and my wife, I, I've always been sort of so obsessive with something in the background, right? Like, so, you know, it was military for a while, and then it was running for a while, and then it was bodybuilding for a while, and now it's OCR. So th there's always been something that's, that's been a very time-consuming hobby I've had. I'm fortunate enough now where with OCR, I actually make money from the sport uh, between writing the articles and selling things off my website. So that definitely softens the blow because it's another... Uh, small form of income on top of our, our normal paycheck. You know, I'll say you need to find a balance. And, you know, my balance may not look like someone else's balance, right? So if, if my, let's say my wife's okay with me racing 16 times a year, um, that may not be okay for every couple, right? Some spouses may only be okay with their husband racing five times a year or, you know, 10 times, right? So you, you have to find a, a balance that's appropriate, and I'll also say that, you know, what's going to be around longer? Is it going to be OCR or your spouse? And I, I, I'm hoping you're, you're going to be with your spouse longer than you're going to be doing obstacle course racing. So just kind of remember that when you're making big, big life decisions. And I also think, not that I should really giving, be giving marriage advice here, I guess, but, you know, an understanding spouse is going to want you to be happy. And if obstacle course racing is part of that happiness equation I think that they should be okay with you racing and I think we get where we get into trouble is you know some people will go to races without their spouse and then they don't just race and come back or you know they they race and then they go out partying with some of their friends and then sometimes they get into other sorts of trouble you know that's just that's just about being a responsible adult and um, not putting yourself in situations like that so yeah, hopefully that helps and, you know, try to find a balance and some, you know, something that works where, you know, you go to a race and then maybe you, you go out to a nice dinner afterwards or something, or you do a race one weekend and the next weekend, you know, your spouse gets to choose whatever the primary activity is. All right, let's keep going. If you could redo one OCR race with the knowledge and training you have now, what would it be and what would you change? So the first thing that comes to mind is conquer the gauntlet. Wichita, I want to say it was 2017. Basically, I was in the lead. I did Tarzan swing, and when I landed on Tarzan swing, there's a line painted on the ground. And I had one foot over the line and one foot behind the line. And I was like, oh, does that count? And the obstacle attendant was like, I don't know. And I was like, I'll just redo the obstacle. And then I go to redo the obstacle, and I can't get across the second time. Like, I pumped my arms out the first time. Anyway, I went back and read the rules afterwards, and you only needed one foot. You only, I think you only needed, part, at the time, part of one foot across the line. So I, I had finished the obstacle, and I had penalized myself and gone back and tried to do the obstacle again. Ultimately, went from first to, I think, fifth. Uh, lost my first chance at winning a gauntlet. Um, it was all right. Uh, Scott Wurzecki, future teammate, ended up winning, winning that race. So the lesson there is read the rules. Even if you've been racing a series for a while, it's always good to get a rule refresher. Another Wichita race comes to mind where the first time they introduced Z-Beam. That was 2016 Wichita, and I was just very ill-prepared for it. So, you know, I would have practiced balance a lot more going into that. Uh, so that exposed the weakness of me. Same thing with the first time I encountered Stairway to Heaven or the at Conquer the Gauntlet, Kansas City 2015 or Platinum Rig at OCR World Championships in 2014. I was just very poorly prepared for it and just didn't have the 
you know, I had the muscle, but I didn't have the neurological connection and practice of doing those specific movements to be able to complete the obstacles successfully. If I could redo one race, I would want to redo World's Toughest Mudder 2015 uh, just because I didn't do well. That's been my worst showing at World's Toughest Mudder. That was the race I flew in from Lebanon, basically did the World's Toughest Mudder, and then got back on a plane and flew back into Lebanon the next day. So I don't really have any... I don't, know, I don't know how I would fix that because I think there's just jet lag that hit me really bad during the race. I would just want to. I just want to redo. I just want to try that one over again. Continuing on, you know, what other podcasts do you recommend for OCR related topics? General training or just good podcasts in general? Again, probably not the best person to ask for this one, but I'm going to answer it anyway. So just like movies and books, I like nonfiction stuff. So I like I like to learn while I'm also training. You know, I still do listen to uh, what I would describe as, you know, talk or entertainment type topics, right? So, you know, podcasts where they just cover, you know, news in the sport or just kind of banter. But I'd say the overwhelming majority of the content I listen to is educational. So, you know, I would find something, find what, what you like and listen to that. You know, for me, I listen, a lot of the podcasts I listen to that are not obstacle course racing related are typically religious content. So I help produce Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church podcast. So I usually, I listen to that just to spot check to make sure the the quality is good and I haven't messed anything up. Uh, there's a website and app called Ancient Faith Radio, and they have a bunch of Christian podcasts that I listen to. Orthodoxy Live, it's a call-in podcast where people call in live and they ask uh, Father Evan Armitas a bunch of questions about about Christianity. I really like that one. It just covers a bunch of random topics that I had no idea that I even had questions for. There's also a podcast on that uh, channel called Search the Scriptures where they talk about the formation of the Bible and then they go through and kind of explain each chapter. So right now they're they're deep into Revelation, which is very interesting because there's a lot of confusing stuff in that book. You know, but I, I would just listen to something that you find interesting. I've tried listening to uh, Jurassic Park, Park podcast for a while, and it was... It's some good episodes, but it was just too, you know, there's not enough new content coming out about a movie uh, where, a, you know, one movie comes out every couple of years. I tried listening to a Resident Evil podcast, but again, kind of same thing. You know, one new game comes out every couple of years. A non-fitness-related podcast that um, I've listened to that is actually really funny is called How Did This Get Made? So the guys from the league and one of the girls from the league that show where they uh, talk about fantasy football, which I don't like fantasy football, and I have no interest in football, but I think The League is a very funny show. And their podcast is equally as funny, if not funnier. And what they do is they go through a bunch of movies, and they basically make fun of them, and they're like, how did this movie get made? And they point out all the glaring things wrong with it. So I highly recommend going over and checking them them out. The two best episodes they've produced or that I've listened to are, one, The Demolition Man, where they talk about Sylvester Stallone and Demolition Man. And there was a point there in that podcast, I don't want to ruin it for you in case you want to go listen, but I laughed so hard I had to stop running and just stand there and, and finish laughing before I could continue running. So highly recommend that one. And then <laughs> the making of Street Fighter. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, in the 90s, <laughs> apparently was all high while f- filming that movie, and they go through some of the backside stuff. And, you know, again... How did this get made? And they turned this video game into this pretty bad movie. 
the Leprechaun in Space episode is pretty good too. But yeah, you can go over and look at how did this get made. And, you know, obviously the, the more you're familiar with the movie, the funnier the episode typically usually is. For most of the... I, I don't really listen to too many other fitness-related podcasts. You know, and then the last thing I'll say is anytime one of my friends is on a podcast, whether Strength and Speed or Conquer the Gauntlet Pro Team, anytime one of the, them is on a different podcast, I always listen. Because again, it's about building that positive environment, right? If, if someone's on a different podcast and I listen to it, that's one more hit that person's going to get. You know, and hopefully... You know, if enough people do that, then you're, again, empowering the athlete and helping creating a positive growing environment like I talked about earlier across the board. Usually for other fitness-related content, I tend to lean towards books over uh, podcasts because podcasts usually are a little more um, – usually the information is not as good and it's a little more wishy-washy and books typically usually have a little more uh, thought put in behind them. So I highly recommend getting a subscription to Audible. Um, if you don't have an Audible subscription, go to my website and click through the link because that'll help. But I, I, I really do recommend listening to Audible. It's just because you, you can, as your interests and topics change, you can find different books to download. And I think the quality of information you get from obviously a purchased book is going to be higher than you're going to get from a podcast. And Maybe I shouldn't be saying that since I'm producing a podcast and you're listening to a podcast, but, you know, it's, it's the truth. Next question. In one of your recent podcasts, you touched on the mental side of sports. What's one of the times you reached a mental low, sports or non-sports related, and how did you get back into the right mindset? You know, for sports related first, I'll, I'll go with, you know, I try to look at things more objectively and figure out, you know, what can I learn from this event instead of just being emotional about something. So my OCR career has been pretty good where I haven't had too many major um, failures that I would, I would call like a failure in racing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to natural bodybuilding, which is something I, I was not nearly as good at as I am at obstacle course racing. You know, so I'd been to a couple of bodybuilding shows, competed in a couple of shows, usually a small crowd, you know, two to four people I'm competing against. Come in last place a couple times. All right, that's fine. There's only a couple of com- competitors. And I went to a bigger show. It was an Ohio Natural show. And there's a lot of competitors. It was like tw- 25 or 30. And I was like, oh, cool. I can, you know, I- I'm not going to win, but I'll, you know, I'll come in 15th place or something. Or, you know, I beat a couple people. Anyway, came in last place again. Dead last, right? You know, so I was feeling down and I'm, I'm, I'm pissed at the result. But, you know, for, you know, for 24 hours, I was kind of wallowing in self-pity. And then I was like, no, you know what? You know, obviously I need to improve, like, you know, and, right? So I just need to be more serious about my diet and training and cardio, right? So, like, instead of, instead of when I got knocked down, instead of just folding up, folding down and giving up, you know, I doubled down on my training and I got, I got more serious. So, you know, that season of competing, you know, it didn't really, there wasn't enough time to make a change, right? Because you have to bulk and then cut, which take literally months. Uh, but the next time, you know, fast forward a year or so later, you know, I had gone through like a serious bulk where I think I got up to like 185, which is really heavy for me. That's about 30 more pounds, uh, 25 more pounds than I weigh right now. And I cut back down and I looked better than ever. And, you know, I had a much better season that year in competing. Yeah, I won my first show. Actually, technically it was my second show. The first show I won 
I was the only competitor in my weight class. But it was, <laughs> I won my first show where I actually beat other people. Uh, and I, I, just looked, I just looked a lot better. And I felt a lot better about my performance and how, how seriously I had prepared. You know, and then in non-sports, yeah, my, my mind kind of defaults to military stuff. And if you read my biography, Ultra OCR Man, one of the quotes I use in the back that I got from instructors that had taught me about the tactical mindset, um, you know, their quote is, there are no victims, there are only volunteers. And I'm, I'm going to summarize a lot of stuff, but yeah, I highly recommend, obviously, reading my biography because I go into it in a lot more depth. But, you know, the summary is there is, you know, you control your destiny and you can you control the outcome of things. You know, we may not have control over everything, but we always have a little bit of control over something, right? And it's that little bit of control you, you got to grasp, yeah, grasp onto and try to affect the outcome. You know, so that's just kind of what I believe in general. You know, everything that happens to you, good or bad, is your own fault. And we, you know, if you keep making decisions that put you closer to your goal, you're going to find yourself more often closer to your goal than if you constantly blame other people or blame other things for your problems. Now, when I went to ranger school back in 2005, I failed ranger school the first two times. Um, so I'd, I'd been there for months trying to get through this course. And after about three months of trying to get through the course, I'm, I'm literally back to where I started. You know, essentially I've made no progress in three months, except now I'm weaker and I'm tired and slower. And honestly, I didn't care. I didn't care anymore. Like, I didn't care if I graduated ranger school. I, the only reason I was there is because I had said, at that point, I was like, I would said I was going to do this, so now this is what I'm doing uh, until they force me out. You know, and I wanted to quit, but I just didn't really view it as an option. So I, again, I controlled what I could control and uh, tried my best. And I was like, well, if they kick me out of the course, they kick me out. But, you know, I'm, I'm not leaving unless unless they force me out, right? So it's just, uh, it just wasn't an option. All right, moving right along. Now, you have a full-time job, full-time family, and are a successful OCR athlete. What are some time management and training optimization things you do to make it all happen? Uh, like we talked about earlier, I have a very understanding wife uh, who, I, who I picked for her ability to be very understanding, and she luckily picked me back. Two is I, I don't watch TV pretty much ever. Uh, three, I take advantage of any sort of downtime I have, right? So I used to go to the gym during lunch and train. Uh, now I typically instead use the lunchtime to write articles. So I'm working on, you know, fitness-related stuff at a time when my coworkers are uh, chit-chatting at lunch or going out and, and spending more time doing other stuff. I also get, try to get up early in the morning for runs because if I find if I late, wait till later in the day, it typically uh, just I don't have as much time to run. See, you know, where, where all this is kind of leading is prioritization. You know, you find the things that are most important, put them first in the day, or put them ahead of things that are you find less valuable, and, uh, you know, be consistent and keep chipping away at whatever your goal is. When I travel for work, I typically have my computer with me, and, you know, while... Other people are on their phone at the airport just kind of scrolling through Facebook. You know, a lot of times I'll be editing an article or I'll be uploading it to Mudrun Guide or editing a podcast, stuff like that. Other than that, I'd say I try to find things that overlap for both, right? So full-time family and successful OCR athlete. So my daughter's five and she's old enough to go climbing now. So on days we go climbing, I try to go running in the morning, 
try to at least start before they get up. They're, they're typically, I typically don't finish before they get up. But I finish my run, I shower, and then we get in the car and we go right to the climbing gym. And, you know, that's my strength workout for the day. And it's also my family time for the day. And then we go get lunch and then, you know, back to the house. And in those days, I find if as long as I'm continually moving and continually engaged, I find I have more energy versus if I if I went for a run and then came back and sat home for a while and kind of let my heart rate drop and, you know, relax and then try to get the motivation to go climbing later. I find if I if I just stay on all the time, I feel like a... I can get more done in a shorter amount of time, you know, and also, you know, getting up early uh, also helps with that. And then also again, prioritization on, on everything, right? So I think, well, I, I know that, you know, there are times I have not made the best career moves because I wanted to do some sort of racing stuff. So, you know, that feeds into my overall happiness, you know, and for me, Having a uh, fulfilling racing life and family life is will make me happier in the long run than essentially making, uh, getting the next position along my career path that's going to help me, you know, make more money or you know get that rank or get that command position. And that's just me looking at things on you know what makes me happiest. And for some people it's money, but not for me. I think in general if you're too money focused, you'll find that. You know, not to get too deep here, but, you know, you can never have enough money, right? There's there's always more money to have, and there's always more stuff to have. I just don't think that's going to make, you know, obviously it helps to, to pay off bills and not be in debt and stuff like that. But, you know, for, you know, there, there's a limit to, uh, you know, the, the more money you get, there's not an, an exponential growth on happiness, I don't think. And you can see it. My wife watches some reality shows sometimes, and I see some of these reality stars and they're like I have Gucci baby bottles and I'm like what why would you buy a Gucci baby bottle do they even make baby bottles that's ridiculous but that's kind of the extreme example of it all right continuing to crush through these questions new people coming into the sport often see the people at the top as always being successful but in reality it often takes several years of being in the sport before being consistently competitive as one of these successful OCR athletes what's something you started doing or realized you had to do in order to get the competitive level you wanted to be big one is identify and then focus on your weaknesses and you can't identify your weakness unless you you race often enough to expose your weaknesses you know so I had to race often enough where I found out that I was not good at balance right and that's something I had to specifically work on whether it be z-beam or slackline right I had to specifically work on those after completely blowing it in several races I also had to race several different race brands and race styles and race distances right so you know competed in stuff that's very obstacle heavy and technique based like Spartan not Spartan like uh, Savage or Conquer the Gauntlet you know I've also competed in stuff that's more speed focused right so Rugged Maniac Warrior Dash where the obstacles play less of a role I've run short course so North American OCR Championships 3k all the way up to ultra distance so BFX World's Toughest Mudder Shell Hell you know and then gone beyond with some of my charity events that are multi-day so basically, I had to sample enough of the sport to figure out, one, what I was good at, and two, what I liked, and then, you know, three, what were my weaknesses? You know, once I kind of figured out those three things, I leaned into what I was good at, right? So if I didn't lean into ultra-distance obstacle course racing, I, could, I would still be trying to do well at, let's say, really short course, right? And, you know, maybe 
maybe I don't, you know, based off my age and uh, genetic makeup, maybe I, I never have the ability to get to the, a really high level in short course. You know, but I found that for ultra distance, I, I already had some, some talent and some skill and training based off my background in marathon running. You know, so that's what I leaned into. So I would, you know, find something you enjoy, find something you're good at, and then kind of lean into those as hard as you can while improving on your weaknesses. You know, my weak, one of my weaknesses is still mountain running because I don't, I don't run enough mountains. I don't train for mountain running. But, you know, if, if Tough Mudder actually went away um, and didn't get resurrected by Joe DeSena, I would probably have to start mountain running so I could compete in some of the Spartan Ultras. You know, and I would make that change if, if I had to. You know, what all these comes down to is persistence and consistency, right? So a little bit of training every day, uh, spread out over a very long time, will, uh, will lead to great success. And, you know, you'll see, you know, guys will come in who've barely been training, and they'll be way better than you. And then um, a lot of times those people don't stick with it, though, because they, they haven't invested the time and effort yet. You know, sometimes they do, but they, they come and go. You know, so so don't get discouraged because sometimes it feels like you're standing still and, you know, or you're, it feels like you're getting better, but there's always still more people in front of you or there's always a next group of athletes that's coming up right behind you. You know, but I think with enough practice, you'll find that a lot of that practice and lessons learned you've experienced will build on each other. You won't even realize it until, you know, a year or two down the line when you're like, oh, yeah, why would you do that? That's, a, you know, that's a rookie mistake. All right, going to keep on trucking here. Uh, which obstacle has given or have you had the most trouble, and how did you conquer it? Is there any obstacle you have never been able to complete? So the only two obstacles that I've like legit failed in races was the first time I did Stairway to Heaven. I fell off it, completely completely bombed that, and I uh, couldn't get across. And the first time I did uh, Platinum Rig, OCR World Championships 2014. I just had never hung from my hands in any other manner than doing monkey bars. You know, and for both of those, and this will this really goes for any obstacle you're trying to do. And I've if you go to the OCR World Championship websites, I use this formula and in a lot of my books I use it too. Uh, for the articles that I wrote for OCR World Championships. You know, or one, uh, to get better at the obstacle, you, your training needs to be specific, so you need to actually do the obstacle. You know, if, if I don't have Stairway to Heaven or I don't have access to, like, devil steps at a ninja gym, the next best thing is to mimic the movement, right? So mimic the hand movement. So my when you're in Stairway to Heaven, your hand is in, like, an L-shaped position, like a false grip position. So you want to practice doing that. So, you know, doing instead of doing pull-ups on a bar, you're doing them on a cross beam of a pulling machine or you're doing them off the top of a squat rack. So something where you can't actually grab it like it's a normal bar. So you're mimicking that exact hand movement. Two, you want to mimic the entire body movement, right? So stairway to heaven involves pull-ups, right? So doing pull-ups with your hand in that position is going to help. And then also practicing the transition. You know, So how do you practice transition on stairway to heaven if I don't have a stairway to heaven? Well, most gyms have squat racks. And typically the squat racks, you can actually transition from one side to the other. Or from, you know, at an angle. So doing like a... A 90 degree transition instead of like a 180 degree transition 
you know, I'll warn you for that, you know, you want to clean off the top of the squat rack because typically they're dirty. And you want to also make sure there's no, like, sharp uh, burrs or anything up top where it's going to cut your hand when you move. I would also move the bar and the catches off the squat rack because you'll find your legs swing around and you can easily, you know, clip a knee or hurt your ankle off the side. So, yes, specificity, so practicing the movement. Like we talked about when uh, Miranda was on the podcast, uh, progressive. So as you continue to get better, continue to make things harder. And then also try to make it enjoyable. So again, if you enjoy something, you're going to put more time and effort into it. I'll also add, you know, for getting better at a specific obstacle, you want to prioritize it. So if you're not good at Pegatron, the first thing you want to do after a rest day should be Pegatron, right? Like practice it when you're fresh. Once you can do it when you're fresh... Then you can start doing it later in your workouts. Then you can start doing it, uh, you know, as a second training session, you know, in your morning's training session was the run. And then you can start doing it in the middle of a run. So I'm running and then I do Pegatron and then I, I continue running. You know, for me personally, I find many of the obstacles actually get harder in training for me just because I don't have that adrenaline going and that uh, pressure to perform. Now, other than that, I have lost my elite band on several of conquer the gauntlet rigs but so far only one only ones where i was running continuum so basically i did the rig once failed and then i was like well my priority is continuum this event so i essentially took the penalty option for continuum gave up the elite band and kept running could i have gotten across those rigs if it was if i was only doing the elite race i would like to think so um but you know you never know because I never had I never had to get, get pushed that level. However, in the past I did get pushed that level. There's a video of me doing uh which again which so many Wichita problems. Me doing one of Wichita's rigs and I I essentially throw myself uh from the last rope or second to last rope onto shore and land on my like a collarbone like two weeks before endure the gauntlet. So not not the best logical decision, but you know, kinda kinda go all in. So there's not been an obstacle that I've encountered that I have not been able to complete that's actually in races. You know, there's plenty of stuff when I go to the ninja gym that I can't do. And I think that makes us better, right? So if I if we train obstacles with ninjas and I train running with runners, it's going to expose my weaknesses and, you know, allow me to get better and prefer, hopefully, get better faster than the sport's evolving. So when the sport does make something harder, it's still below the level I've been training at because I'm used to training with all these these ninja obstacle specialists. I simultaneously look forward and dread the day when I find an obstacle that I, I can't conquer. But I think with most things, practice, 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 and you'll eventually get there. Now for some people coming into the sport, right, if you're in a pure from a pure running background, you may not physically have the muscle to do some of the obstacles yet. And that's gonna take a little bit longer to develop that that muscle strength and that neurological connection to actually do the obstacles. You know, I think it was Callie Schweikart podcast, I think it was earlier this year. And I'm pretty sure, one, that's a really good episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, definitely go back. But I think she was the one who basically said, you know, the kids that were performing the best uh, that she works with are just ones that can move well, right? So they can just do basic movements really well. And, you know, so essentially if you have the fitness level, you know, I have the, I have the cardio level to do things and I have the muscle from strength training where – I can pick up most things pretty fast now uh, because of that, because I have the, the foundation there, and then it requires just a little bit of practice and building that neurological connection 
where I get my body used to doing whatever specific movement I'm doing. So I'm much more capable now than I was back in high school when I did not have the muscle and only had a little bit of cardio. Next question. Over the years, in an effort to innovative obstacles in the OCR experience, obstacles have gotten more difficult. In general, for competitive racers, especially championship races, do you think we have reached the optimal level of balance of obstacle difficulty? You know, and then he goes on with a bunch of follow-up questions. So I'll answer that first part. N- no, I'm going to say no. And we'll, we'll never reach it because, you know, appropriately hard for one person is going to be way too hard for one. Another person is going to be way too easy for another person. There's an article I vote for Adventure OCR World Championships website uh, that talks about flow state. And basically, people are happiest in obstacle course races when it Re- like the obstacle difficulty approaches their maximum potential without exceeding it. So essentially it's hard enough that you know you can barely make it across the obstacle so you're, you exceed your expectations but everyone who's weaker than you uh, falls off the obstacle. And I think that's one of the things that makes obstacle course racing great is you can always tweak the difficulty of things where the outcome of the race won't be the same every time. You know where sometimes the obstacles are difficult and it favors the more uh, obstacle proficient athlete and other times the obstacles are easier where it favors the, the runner or it favors the, you know, the mountain runner. And I think that, I think it just keeps the sport really interesting versus a bunch of road runners lining up with, they all say their PRs and you know what the outcome of the race is before it's even over. And then I also think mandatory obstacle completion also plays a big role in that, right? Whereas, you know, in a Spartan race, if you have a couple minute lead on someone, you know, they, depending on what obstacles are left, it might it essentially might be in the bag, right? That that person could theoretically fail the last couple obstacles and burpee out and still win. Uh, versus, right, a Conquer the Gauntlet race or Savage race, you can be one obstacle away from the finish line and just be stuck there. And it keeps things interesting. It also creates a unique cha- training challenge where if you focus too much on running and not enough on obstacles, you could, you know, you could forfeit your ability to finish a race and uh, lose your elite band. So he goes on, if not, which direction does it need to head more or less difficult, and what would that look like? And I'm going to answer this with yes. So yes, it, um, you know, I think it. I should think. I think it should expand in all directions, right? Like I love that races. We have 24 hour races, and we also have, you know, a hundred meter race now at the OCR World Championships. I love that we have races on mountains, even though I don't do them, and we have runs that are pancake flat. You know, I think just I think variance. I think variance is good. And the more variance we get, the more interesting the sport is. With regards to the balance between open and competitive waves, how do you think races could economically and practically allow appropriately challenging obstacles for both levels to allow for both to have an enjoyable experience? Uh, He says he has some ideas, but he doesn't want to bias my answer. You know, so one option, obviously, that we've seen at Battlefrog is difficulty lanes, right? So you have a couple of harder lanes, a couple of medium lanes, a couple of easier lanes. We've also seen Conquer the Gauntlet do this with, uh, you know, sometimes they have male sides of the rig and female sides of the rig. Again, I'm going to cite that OCR World Championships article I wrote on, you know, I think it was called What's the Appropriate Difficulty Level for Obstacle Course Racing or something like that. I'll, I'll find the link and throw it up in the, uh, on the Strength and Speed Facebook page. You know, but I think at the end of the day, there's a very small percentage of people who actually care if they can do every single obstacle on there, right? Like, Obviously, the elites care because they're trying to win. And um, the people who are, care about their times and competitive 
they care also because they are invested in the sport. They're putting in the training and the time. You know, but I think the other 90% of the people, just the, you know, the open waves, like I, they don't care, right? Like, like if you go to a race with a rope climb, you'll watch, you know, 50% plus of the people fail the obstacle. And you're like, and, and they don't care. They're just happy. They're just happy to be out there with their friends, running around the mud, trying some things they may have seen on Ninja Warrior. Now, the, the confusing part is I think that that percentage that does care is just, is the very, they're very vocal, right? Because those are the people who are going to multiple races a year. And they're also, their expectations, um, their achievements are not ex- exceeding their expectations, right? So we talked about that earlier, about, you know, expectations versus reality and performance. And if I consider myself an elite obstacle course racer, and I'm used to telling people I'm an elite obstacle course racer, or I'm a competitive, whatever, whatever you tell people, right? Or I'm a pro, whatever, whatever you, you say about yourself. And then you show up to a race and you can't do one of the obstacles. It is creating, uh, you know, an incongruence with who you see, how you see yourself, right? It's, it's, it's presenting a tough reality that can be hard to deal with, you know, but that, that exposed weaknesses and, you know, you can you can take it and be upset with it, or you can take it and learn from it and figure out, well, what am I do, what am I doing wrong, and how do I get better at that specific task so this doesn't happen to me again? You know, and it sucks. It, it absolutely sucks, right? Like I I didn't walk away from 2015's Conquer the Gauntlet in Kansas City after failing Stairway. Like, oh, I'm, that was a great experience, right? Like I felt terrible. That was terrible. Um, but again, instead of giving up or being like, all right, I'm never coming back to Conquer the Gauntlet again. You know, I doubled down on my training, and now I can do stairway significantly easier than I could, you know, one year ago, three years ago, four years ago. You know, for some of the obstacles, they're really easy to scale, right? For, like, log carries, instead of one log, you carry two. Instead of instead of sandbags, you know, instead of one sandbag, you carry two. So those are easily scalable. You know, and for rigs, if you have enough support staff, you could even, you know, leave the rig one way for the first hour of the day um, until the elite wave goes through, and then you can theoretically go in and, Switch everything to rings, right, uh, to make it easier for everyone else. You know, and stuff like walls, obviously, you can use a kicker board uh, and that, you know, you say the elites are not allowed to use. You know, even on the A-frame, we've seen at Conquer the Gauntlet where one side essentially has no rungs to get up to the base of the A-frame cargo net. and the other, So you essentially have to do like a jump slash muscle up type movement. Um, and then the other side has rungs. So, you know, s- scaling difficulty lanes is an option. Yeah, I highly recommend we you read that obstacle difficulty article I wrote for OCR World Championships. And again, I'll share that to the Strength and Speed uh, Facebook page. So make sure you, you check that out and keep an eye out. Uh, with the general consensus to make OCR a more mainstream sport, do you see OCR ever becoming collegiate or maybe a high school sport? If so, how do you think it would be implemented standardized? I have my own ideas how to make it work. I'd like to hear yours. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on the last podcast, but to make it standardized... To make it standardized is, is different, not necessarily the same thing as making it a collegiate or high school sport. So standardized would be easy. Uh, it's essentially doing a steeplechase, but instead of jumps off to the side, I have a platinum rig off on one side, I have an eight-foot wall off on one side, right? You create a couple of standard obstacles, and that that is the way it creates a standard version of the sport, something you can test and then go to the Olympics with. You know, the non-standardized version, which can still be a high school sport or a collegiate sport, or be in something like the X Games is another option. 
you know, I think some high schools actually have OCR clubs. I think that's a thing at some places. Uh, I'd imagine some collegiates, collegiate sports have it as like a club team. You know, I can totally see that. And I think some brands have tried to reach out, you know, with uh, Battle Frog Collegiate Championships that was aired on television. And I think Spartans tried to reach out. You know, I think it's just, I think someone's just going to have to uh, take some initiative. Right? It seems too easy. If Spartan is holding races all across the country on like every weekend, it seems too easy um, to just coordinate across several schools and just show up to the race, right? And then have whatever funding you use to pay for your college sport just go to race entries. You know, and perhaps there might be some sort of, um, you know, like there's all these ambassador codes and discount codes. Perhaps there's a collegiate discount code that, you know, you know, in order to be, in order to, to compete, you have to, you know, or you don't have to, but, you know, that's one way to reduce cost. And then you essentially do a collegiate wave at every race. And that's, you know, the, the pros go off first, they compete for prize money. Uh, the collegiates go off second. You know, and some of them may be faster than some of the pros. It's just the way things are. And then you have the competitive age groups, and then you have the open waves. So I think it really just takes someone reaching out and taking the initiative and someone who has the time and energy and effort uh, to coordinate things across multiple schools and across a region. You know, and just like Spartan has, you have series, right? So, you know, here's my region. Here are the schools that are in the, that region. And here are the, you know, three to six races, whatever, that we compete in. You know, and it, it could all be aligned under one brand. It could all be under Spartan. Or it could be over across multiple brands, right? Like, all right, if you're, you know, based out of Chicago, you know, maybe you, one of yours is a Spartan, one of them's a Savage, and then maybe you drive over to you know, Iowa and do conquer the gauntlet there. Just take someone who's motivated and has the time and energy uh, to put the effort into uh, get things going and get people on the same page. You know, with all these things, it's got to start someplace, right? So it probably starts as a club thing. And then as it gains traction, gains momentum, and then it becomes more of a collegiate thing. Yeah, I've got a fairly long uh, concept for similar things, but you know, how do you, how do you make pro obstacle course racing bigger um, in the sport. And I've, I've written an article called, uh, it's basically a concept for an obstacle course racing pro league that I've never published because I was waiting to see if someone was going to do something with it. I don't have, I don't have time, uh, to do something with it to the extent I like, but it's a concept that, you know, it gets the ball moving, right? And you, you go, oh, well, well, that's not really, they're not really pros. It's like, well, you got to start someplace, right? Like, the first baseball players still had day jobs, right? It, it was a while before they were multi-million athletes, multi-million dollar athletes. And you look at, you look at any professional sport, you know, in most professional sports, they still have day jobs. That, that's like the norm. The, the not norm is baseball players and football players and, um, you know, hockey players making multi-million dollar contracts. That, that's not normal. You know, most sports uh, that, that say they have a professional aspect you know, most of those dudes still have day jobs. All right, moving on. Do you see OCR being permanently changed by COVID-19? If so, if so, how? If these changes won't be permanent, how long will it be before things are back to normal? Well, before things are back to completely normal, I would say essentially a vaccine has to come out and then the population of America has to actually willingly take the vaccine. Otherwise, it's going to be a slow adjustment back to, uh, you know, back to 
what we saw you know two years ago I think a bunch of brands are gonna go out of business I think it's gonna be very rough on people uh, like I've talked about previously if you're a race owner and you're used to making right let's say you make twenty thousand dollars a race and now you're making ten thousand dollars a race you know you know, think about what your day job is would you go to work for half the paycheck so I think you're gonna you know brands may still make money but they may not make enough money where it's you know it's not worth their time and energy and effort I think bigger brands like Spartan are gonna have to get more used to doing things on the cheap so I don't know if Spartan has let go of some of their employees uh, or what they're doing but you know they're gonna have to get used to operating like they were back in uh, you know 2013 when they didn't have as much money coming in and I think brands that don't adjust uh, to a lower amount of race entries will will not last because they'll be they'll be overspending and getting under the norm getting under registrations of what they need to do to survive or make a decent amount of money so yeah every every time I think the sport is leveled out and things are going to be normal for a while you know things wildly change and I think COVID-19 probably sped up the timeline for a lot of stuff where, you know, some brands that would have lasted another two or five years are going to go out of business in, you know, in one year or something like that. So bottom line is if, if you love a brand, get out and race that brand and, and bring your friends because, you know, I think if we, if we wait too long, some of the brands we love may not be around. I'm not saying that about any specific brand, just, um, yeah, I just, uh, this is what I, my thoughts are. Next question. What things have you learned from OCR that can apply to everyday life situations, the ups and downs of life? How has OCR in general made you, your life better or worse? You know, obstacle course racing is a great analogy for life. You know, you've heard people, you know, if I can overcome this obstacle in the course, I can overcome this personal problem in my uh, day-to-day life. And that works, but it also works in reverse, right? If I can overcome whatever your personal problem is, bad breakup, you know, family problems, you can also overcome the stuff you're facing on the course. I think in one of Joe DeSena's books, he talks about obstacle immunity, where essentially, you know, you get used to doing challenging things as a hobby or in your life, and then when actual challenging things occur, it's not as big of a deal, right, because you're used to being in difficult situations. You know, if I'm used to being at world's toughest mudder and not sleeping and running through the night and being cold and wet, and uncomfortable the whole time if my boss is asking me to stay up and do a project that's going to take a good chunk of the night it's, it's not as big of a deal you know I think for those of you who went to college and have experienced that you know if you've if you've done a couple all-nighter projects you know you you've experienced something challenging so the next time you have to do an all-nighter project well hopefully you plan it out better but if you don't you know that you can still physically accomplish it right it's less it should be less stressful the next time something challenging like that happens in your life. You know, with races, sometimes you have good races, sometimes you have bad races. You know, just like, just like most days. You know, some some days are good, some days are bad. You know, but how you deal with it is is on you. No one's gonna make you have a good day, and no one's gonna make you have a good race, right? It's up to you uh, to do that, right? So getting back to my uh, no victims, only volunteers uh, mindset I talked about earlier. Of you know, the the nicer way to say that is you know you control your own destiny. So, you know, if you make the right decisions, you'll be closer to your end state. You know, and a couple of bad decisions won't typically won't permanently set you off course, right? But, you know, if you make enough of those decisions, it will. And I think a couple of weeks ago, Matt, I think it was Matt Willis, shared something about, you know, how much of, how much of a role does luck play in your life? 
and they, it had a really good video and it had a lot of good points. I'd say the one thing the video didn't touch on was right, like if I'm always or more often than not making good decisions, it's going to put me into a luckier category. So, you know, it it appears as luck to the outsider looking at it as as an isolated event. When you, if you look, it's it's more of I'm putting myself in a better situation repeatedly. You know, in one of those times, it pays off. Jump back to one of my other favorite quotes, right? The appearance of success is often those that just didn't give up. So OCR has made my life better, 100% hands down. I mean, that's not even a question. Right? I love finding something that I can really pour my energy and effort into, and obstacle course racing for me is it. Yeah, I've gotten more out of this sport than I ever thought was physically possible in, in any sport, right? I've, you know, I've gone to Lebanon and Kuwait and then taken family trips to uh, Australia and the United Kingdom, you know, all for racing and then typically a vacation attached to it. You know, I've had sponsors provide stuff for me and, and cover the cost of things and it just gave me such incredible opportunities. I just, like, I, I'm still baffled by some of the stuff that has happened to me, right? I just I just consider myself uh, very, very fortunate. You know, then not to mention all the great friends I've made and connections I've made and people I've gotten to interact with and, you know, top athletes I've gotten to meet and interview for this podcast and you know, this this podcast, I hope, is educational for people, but it's also educational for me, right? Like, I've learned so much from interviewing people and talking to them and just have a better appreciation uh, for the athletes that put in the time and effort to compete in this sport or really any other sport. I think it's also made me more understanding, right? Anytime you put yourself out there, you know, I write books, I produce podcasts, I write articles, you know, you get a lot of positive comments, you get some negative comments. You know, people say some People say some nasty stuff about you sometimes. It's the way it is, right? Big symbols make big targets. So I think that's made me more compassionate, more sympathetic, uh, empathetic with my uh, fellow racers. And maybe I don't always make the best decisions, but I think I make, I think I made the, the best, the good decision more often than not. I've got about three and a half years left before I can retire from the army, and I'll go get a new job. And I think because indirectly because of obstacle course racing, I think I found what I want to do next. But uh, I'm gonna keep that as a secret for now. So if you if you want to find out, you have to you have to follow along for a while and hope that I keep racing and don't don't become a ghost on social media. Because once I stop racing, I think I'm gonna step out of that uh, that because you know I, I enjoy it a little bit, but a lot of times it's it's you know I'd rather I'd rather do other stuff. Yeah. It's part of, it's part of the racing culture and being an athlete and uh, getting perks for for your performance. You gotta you gotta be in that. You got to put yourself in that social media spotlight there. All right, moving on. You frequently interview athletes from other sports and apply lessons from their training and competitions to OCR. What is a sport you haven't interviewed an a- a- athletic from yet that you'd like to? I don't really have any specific sports. You know, I think there's a lot of athletes I would love to talk to um, just from a variety of sports. You know, most of them are athletes who I've read their biographies or their books. So like Dean Carnazis, who I've I ran a – one of his 50 days, 50 states marathons with him. Um, and I've, I got to talk to him there. And, you know, James Lawrence, the Iron Cowboy, he did 50 Ironman, 50 states, 50 days. You know, so there's some specific athletes, but I'm having trouble thinking of it like a sport that I specifically feel like I'm missing. Um, I'm always looking for interesting stuff. So if anyone has any suggestions of a sport you'd like to hear, or if you have a connection in a sport of someone who's a pro or high level athlete in that specific, uh, sport i you know I'd, I'd be more than happy to listen and 
um, take accept uh, suggestions for podcasts and see if they they make a good fit for strength and speed podcast. All right, last well, last one from Will. Uh, with some people saying that the OCR market is kind of leveling off or feeling stale, what do you think OCR events could do or add to make racing more fresh and appeal, both to the veteran racer, the open waiver, and draw in new participants? So interesting question here because, um, and then someone loved it, you know, because he says it's it's feeling stale. So I think the problem here is obstacle course racing attracts a specific type of athlete, someone who's tired of the monotony of like. Running, it's where it's it's you know, all all it changes the distance really, and then maybe the terrain changes slightly. But you know, a lot of road running, it's, it's just the same, it's the same thing over and over again. You know, no one's going, oh, the marathon's getting stale. You know, but the marathon's been around since was it 1896, right? The first Olympics, and hasn't changed since I think like 1908, right? So like it, in 1908, they extended the length of the marathon from like 25 miles to I think 26.2, so it could finish in front of the Queen in England, you know, and that's how we got 26.2. That's how we get such a weird distance. Um, so the, the marathon hasn't changed since 1908, but no one's like, oh, we got to change with the marathon. Yeah, obstacle course racing attracts people who are tired of the same thing, so they're always looking for something new. And I think that's a great draw, but you know, perhaps that'll that'll that may also be a, a downfall at some point where you know people brands get tired of innovating. So I actually kind of disagree with this. I, you know, I, I'm happy with the way things are. I think we have a, such a wide variety of events. Uh, I just hope more of them stick around, right? Like that that hammer race I talked about earlier, the one we run with the ten pound sledgehammer. Um, they're no longer putting on a race, a race events in um, Minnesota, right? So they don't have any more events, you know. So I would love to see. I would love to even if Hammer Race is gone for good, right? Like I'd love to see another brand pick up that concept. I think it's so so cool or something similar. I think there's a lot of people with great ideas, and um, I don't I don't have any specific suggestions. It's like that uh, that quote was it uh, Henry Ford? He said if if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a um, a carriage with more horses, you know, and then he creates the car, right? So sometimes I think you don't even know, you don't even know what you want um, because you haven't you haven't thought far enough outside the box, you know. So who knows where the sport goes in the future, and you know what kind of variety we get. Uh, the one thing that I would love to see that I I haven't seen is um, stage racing, and I'm not necessarily saying like OCR America where it's ultra endurance stage racing, but I would love to see some short course type stage racing, right? So, you know, New York's got some great courses, Viking Hill, uh, permanent courses, Viking Hill, and um, Noob Sanity up there. I would love to see events that are essentially two days in two different locations, right? So you race Saturday, you know, a 5K one day, and then you do a 10K or 5K the next day, and they take the winner of those two and maybe give give everyone a special medal. I think that would be super cool where you know, you may have to drive, but it's a, it's not a super long drive. You know, it's like a couple hours, you know, less than three hours between events. And then you'd expose people to different different brands at the same time, you know, maybe pull in some participants from each each side. All right, so last question before we go. I think it was from Matthew Knight. Uh, I didn't save it, but I remember him asking it on a post. Uh, he asked, you know, what's the point of a pro team? You know, it's a good question, and uh, we can go several different ways and kind of dive a little bit deeper into it you know but at the end of the day the point of a pro team is to sell tickets right sell tickets to a specific brand's race you know and that happens through a couple of ways one uh the pro team essentially acts as an advertising 
uh, mechanism, right? So if someone's wearing the Spartan shirt or the Conquer the Gauntlet shirt and showing up to other races, you're a walking advertisement for that brand. Two, um, assuming perks are good enough, the it provides incentive for athletes, right? So, you know, let's say I go to a couple races and I'm good enough to get on the podium. You know, I get on the podium a couple times and, you know, it's like, all right, well, you know, I've, I've gotten a couple podiums, I've gotten a couple wins, you know, where do I go from here? You know, maybe that gives you an extra goal to shoot for, you know, so there's uh, people have been trying to get on the Spartan Pro Team for years um, and conquer the Gauntlet Team and some other brands, right? So it gives you something to shoot for, a goal to attain or achieve, right? So again, we're getting, but we're getting back to selling tickets because, you know, if, if you want to get on that pro team, you got to show up to those races and you got to perform well. You know, it's also a way to give back to loyal customers and loyal athletes who have been putting in the time and effort to perform. So athletes will get, you know, a bunch of benefits and um, products and make it money. They might get, you know, some some stuff covered, some of their their training and uh, equipment cost covered. You know, it's a way to say thank you to those athletes. Also provide perks for them, so continuing incentive. And again, if those athletes are getting perks, you know, theoretically other people might want to be on that team. So again, it's we're back to selling tickets, right? Selling tickets, or um, you know, for for conquer the gauntlet, we have a bunch of sub sponsors. Uh, it's helping those brands that are sub sponsors uh, sell their product. I'll say three. It also creates a, a positive atmosphere, or you know, an en- enjoyable atmosphere. I talked about earlier with. You know, if you create that impositive environment where you're all, you know, the, the it pulls everyone's average up. You know, what, what's that saying where they say you're a, you're a combination of like your three or five closest friends, right? So if if I'm hanging around with the, the same three or five athletes who are better than me, right, it's gonna pull it's gonna pull all our averages up because we're um, overtly and sud- you know kind of inadvertently competing with each other, whether we realize it or not. You know, we see that across the board with all teams, right? There's all there's a strength and we have a strength and speed team. There's there's regional teams where you know you're making friends and competing against other teams, and um, you know sometimes it's more of a serious competition. Other times it's completely friendly, and other times just um, you know people like to belong to things, right? It's always you know it's us versus them. It's America versus the world. It's Republicans versus Democrats. People like being in groups. And having something in common, it makes them feel good about themselves. And it makes them feel good that they have uh, people who are like them around them. Which, again, creates that positive atmosphere, uh, which makes you want to return to the event. Oh, yeah, we're, back to, we're back to selling tickets here. So if I, have a lot, I have a lot of great memories tied to Conquer the Gauntlet. Uh, even if I stop representing their brand, I'm still going to go to their races. Because I, I, there's just so many good memories tied to that location. And the, that community and those athletes. And that goes from the you know the the guys on the podium to the people coming in last, just having a good time on the course, and uh, a lot of times those people are are more fun than the competitive people, you know. And I live in that competitive world. That's where that's where my bread and butter is. But you know, without the open waivers and the you know the, what we call the CTG family, that's it just wouldn't be the same. They're the ones who who really make up like the heart and soul of the company. And you know, same thing with Tough Mudder, right? The the guys in the toughest and world's toughest podiums are not. They don't, that doesn't make the Tough Mudder community, right? Like, it's, it's, it's the tough, like, the world's toughest Mudder community. The, you know, the people who are, the people who are, who are drinking in the middle of events and having a great time, right? They, that makes the community. And that's, that's, that helps bring people back. You know, and the last part I'll say is, you know, is, is being on a pro team unfair, right? If, 
does it give me some sort of special advantage or does it give some of the Spartan pros a special advantage? Yeah, I'm going to assume that they don't know about things um, that are substantial any earlier than the general public, right? I know uh, for Conquer the Gauntlet, they don't release the course map to the team ahead of time or be like, oh, here's the new obstacle that's coming. Like We typically find that about the new obstacle when we show up on race day just like everyone else. You know, so as long as brands are doing that, uh, no, it doesn't give you a particular advantage. You know, it does help reduce costs uh, for racing and training and competing. So perhaps that's an advantage. But I don't, I don't think that's an unfair advantage. I think, again, the athletes, uh, whether they're on whatever pro team they're on, right, they, they work to get to that level uh, and they've achieved those things and now they get to reap some of the benefits. When I first started competing in obstacle course racing, I remember coming back to work and people would be like, oh, well, some of the guys you're competing in, you know, they're not, they don't have full-time jobs and they're not getting their masters at the same time like you are. And I was like, yeah, but that, that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant, right? Like all that matters is the performance on race day. I'm going to use Ryan Atkins as an example uh, for a minute, right? So he, his full-time job is competing. So you can say, well, that's not fair because he has more time to compete or more time to train, which makes him a better athlete, which makes him a better uh, competitor. But the thing is, he put in so much work over so many years that he built himself up to that level that he now is reaping the benefits from you know decades and countless hours of training, right? So is it unfair? No, he's just reaping the benefits from a lifetime of work. You know, I hope more brands uh, start pro teams. I think that's good for the sport. I think it's it's good for the athletes. It gives them something to strive for. It gives them some sort of perks or some sort of benefits, you know, regardless of how big or how little those are. It, g- it gives, you know, we're empowering the athletes here. And like I've talked about on my podcast, that's what I that's what I try to do, and that's what I hope brands do. And, you know, like we talked about the collegiate sports, you got to start someplace, right? You, you got to start someplace. So I think... You know, in the military, we call them tab protectors, right? Like, as soon as you get a ranger tab or a special forces tab, you're like, you know, there's some guys who are like, well, now that I'm in the cool kids club, right? Like, I'm going to stop anyone else from getting in, or I'm only going to accept the ones who are truly worthy. You know, and there is a standard to uphold. But at the same time, right, we, we have to start someplace. And, you know, the, to me, the more the better, right? If more brands want to start pro teams, I say, I say go for it. And if there are teams starting where the athletes are are not as good, and then guess what? Someone else can show up and beat them and take their spot, right? Again, we're creating incentive, we're selling tickets, we're uh, moving the sport forward in a positive direction. You know, I wish I wish Savage would start a team. I'm not sure if Tougher Mudder is going to come back, but I would love to see like a Toughest Mudder Pro team. You know, and why do they have to be aligned with a brand uh, versus? You know, someone else just starting a uh, a pro team based off of you know whatever a club team or a um, you know let's say like atomic climbing holds pro team right you know anything uh, can be a pro team it's typically easier for the a race brand to have a team right because it doesn't cost the brand money to give away an entry right so if I if we created the atomic climbing holds pro team um, someone would have to pay for those athletes to enter atomic climbing hole or attend, attend, attend other races, uh, which if you've ever tried to get sponsors, it's a lot easier to get stuff and product from brands than it is to get money. Money is typically harder to get because you can't, you can't exactly tell where it's going a lot of times, right? If a brand gives me $200, am I you know, spending that on food or whatever, or am I 
um, using that for something that's very specific for training. Right? If I get if if a, if a company if a sponsoring company gives me a sandbag, you know, and they that's let's say it's it's valued at eighty dollars, it doesn't cost that brand eighty dollars to give me a sandbag. Right? It costs whatever their production value is for that sandbag. It costs I don't know, say twenty dollars, let's say. But as an athlete, it's worth $80 to me because that's how much I would have to pay if I was buying one. So I think when you have a brand that's aligned, uh, when you have a pro team that's aligned with a specific brand, it's just, it's more cost efficient uh, for everyone involved. You know, and there are plenty of athletes who are not on uh, quote unquote pro team who are better than athletes on pro teams, right? This doesn't, doesn't, make, doesn't make you better than someone else. Definitely not. All right, I think I, I pontificated long enough and hopefully this was interesting. Uh, these... I usually don't check episode uh, download numbers, but occasionally, like, you know, once or twice a year, I'll look at them. And usually these have a, a lot higher than I'm expecting. So I think people are enjoying these. So, you know, if you want, we can continue to do these occasionally. But, you know, if not, let me know. If you're like, eh, I don't really like this format, then, yeah, just let me know. Uh, stick around for the next episode. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the science side of obstacle course racing. We're going to be talking a little bit more about altitude training and some of what's actually going on inside your body and um, some other stuff about, you know, the physics of actually moving across a rig and, you know, how it, apo- how it cre- creates different forces on your body and, you know, what, what we can learn from that and how we can make it uh, more useful uh, for training and for competing and racing. You know, keep training, keep working hard, and remember everything on this, all the, the advice I kind of gave in the last hour or so, it's all scalable, right? So adjust it to whatever... Uh, level you're at so you can find some way to improve or you know if your goal oriented is just fun then uh don't worry about improvement and uh, just just have fun out there but make sure you bring your friends so we can still be racing in uh, two years uh, after the the fallout of covid hits hope to see everyone out back on the course next year i'm i'm done with the virtual racing that's it's worn out it's welcome i've had enough let's get back to some real races so uh train hard and stay focused this off season I'll see you out in the course in 2021. I'm out.